This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. We could start thinking of pediatric pain management the same way we think about pediatric seizure management. If you think they're having a seizure, then you should probably intervene. If you think that they're in pain, then you should probably intervene. If a patient doesn't get pain management pre-hospital, their time to pain management in the hospital actually can take quite a while because somebody needs to see them, somebody needs to get access, somebody needs to order the medication, somebody needs to draw it and administer it. It's not really like, oh, they're going to get it in five minutes. It might actually be an hour or so until they until they get it. Intranasal fentanyl is preferred over intramuscular or IV fentanyl in pediatric patients. So we shouldn't be delaying pediatric pre-hospital pain control for IV access. Why on earth would we think that the patient is going to get treated immediately upon arrival, which this paper clearly shows is not going to happen? We have the ability to make them feel better. Let's do that. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This is a co-published episode made for the launch of a brand new podcast from the National Association of EMS Physicians called the Pediatric EMS Podcast. It's built by doctors Joel Donofrio-Odman and Joseph Finney. You may have recognized two other voices in those opening outtakes. One was Dr. Jarvis, another Dr. Dorsett, both of whom have been on the show before. Listen in, and if you like what you hear, head over to their podcast, the Pediatric EMS Podcast, and subscribe. Here's our recording. Welcome to the Pediatric EMS Podcast. This podcast is focused on expert commentary and case review of pediatric pre-hospital care brought to you by the very best in both pediatrics and EMS with the goal of improving the treatment of children outside the hospital and in your community. This podcast episode is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, whose mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Joseph Finney, Pediatric Emergency Medicine and EMS Physician at St. Louis Children's Hospital in association with the Wash University School of Medicine. And I'm Dr. Joelle Donofrio-Odman, Pediatric Emergency Medicine and EMS Physician from San Diego, where I am a Associate Professor at the University of California, San Diego, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for the City of San Diego and San Diego Fire Rescue, and the EMS Medical Director for our local tertiary children's hospital. This very first episode is particularly special. We have an all-star cast of content experts and EMS clinicians. With special guest experts from the Medic Mindset, the Pediatric Emergency Care Podcast, and the EMS Lighthouse Project. So we have a lot of special contributors, and we will be co-publishing this podcast across all of our platforms. So stay with us because we're going to talk about how to manage pain in the pediatric pre-hospital setting. As with all things in pediatrics, a lot of patients can't just tell you, hey, I'm in a lot of pain. I need you to do something. So what can we do to make sure we identify it and treat it? First, we need to explore the barriers to treating pain. So Ginger, tell us, tell us the story. 
So this was a 12-year-old with a tibia fracture. That's Ginger Locke, paramedic and EMS educator who also hosts the podcast, The Medic Mindset. Riding on the back of a motorcycle with a parent and was struck laterally by a vehicle in a large intersection. So we had multiple patients, very minimal pre-arrival information other than the mechanism. I was with an EMT partner and I was a fairly new paramedic. And our first view of this patient was through our windshield. He was still in protective clothing, wearing a helmet, boots, leather jacket, but we saw him sitting on this large decorative boulder off the side of the road at the corner of the intersection. And we later learned that the parent had assisted the patient to walk out of this kind of busy intersection. He was really pale. His eyes were actually closed and he was slumped over in this like seated position with lots of bystanders kind of holding him up. And so our initial view through the windshield was this is a very sick patient. We were thinking multi-system trauma because of the mechanism. Our initial impression was not good. So our initial assessment, low level of consciousness, he wasn't even responding to verbal stimulus. He was pale, couldn't find radio pulses, weak carotid that actually felt a little relatively bradycardic to what we thought the condition was. And it took a good bit of time to get him uh, supine because there were other large rocks around this one big boulder. So it's kind of rough terrain. Uh, when we finally got him flat uh, onto a backboard to move him to the ambulance that was really close by, he started waking up and he, he started kind of opening his eyes. And by the time we got to the back of the truck, he was actually fully awake and kind of had transformed before our eyes back to awake, talking, crying even. And a kind of our c- continued assessment in the ambulance was, oh, this isn't you know hemorrhagic shock. This isn't looking like uh, your typical kind of shock signs anymore. Now this is starting to look like isolated extremity trauma. So we were wondering if perhaps the more time we spent with him and he kind of trended better, we were thinking maybe perhaps this was psychogenic shock that we saw initially. And once we got him flat, things cleared up. And that is the the teaching point is that we were able to kind of shift gears and realize this is a different patient than what we thought. So we just decided to go just to a smaller hospital close by and on the way to the hospital, you know, just doing some simple monitoring, starting an IV. Uh, but he cried the whole way there in a tremendous amount of pain uh, with the tibia. And I think I was never able to fully get my brain rewired to to step away from those shock signs. And I kind of spent the rest of this call with the patient just worried and suspicious, could this be multi-system trauma? Thinking about the pain management, from me, uh, he got none. I kind of thought to myself, would I have taking care of an adult the same way, I think I would have been more brave to give an adult some pain management. And with a kid, I was just a little worried, like, what could that do to the... I didn't want to see the patient looking like I had seen him at the beginning, which was unresponsive and and all these shock signs. I was afraid of what narcotic pain relief, because I had fentanyl at the time as an option, what that would do. And so I just sat tight. And I kind of thought back to this philosophy about PEDS that when we have this crying, screaming baby, that we're kind of sometimes happy with that as compared to this sleepy, quiet baby. And so no no pain management from me. But I do think, you know, we got the patient to the right hospital, which is kind of the teaching point that I bring to the classroom. But pain management-wise, not so great. Hey, Ginger, I have a question for you. You said you did not treat his pain, but I have a funny suspicion you placed your patient in a splint. Yes, Yeah, we did put a SAM splint with some wrap around it. We did do that. Splinting is amazing pain control. 
there is pharmacologic and there is non-pharmacologic pain control. And for an extremity injury, that is one of the best things you can do for pain. Did you consider the reaction of the receiving in-hospital team? You gave a dose of you know, intranasal fentanyl. That's Jeremiah Escajeda, EM and EMS physician in Cleveland, Ohio, as well as a member of the PEC podcast team. And maybe the hemodynamics shifted a little bit to more of a shock state. Was that part of your thinking as far as, oh, how will this be perceived once I get to the hospital if I've ignored shock and treated pain and the hemodynamics changed? It's a great question. And, and one, we could even without the shock, just treating uh, pediatrics with narcotics, I think every call, I was always a little worried about the reception by the hospital because I got a lot of feedback from them through my career. Any any sedation that I did or pain management, I usually, not so much pain management, certainly sedation, I got a good bit of feedback on that. And so I was worried that I would get some pushback. I think that's a really good transition to think about what are the barriers. That's Maya Dorsett, EMS and EM physician, as well as member of the PEC podcast team. Because one of the the themes and the decision-making that I heard in your thought process was, if this was an adult, would I have managed it differently? And I'm much more nervous to pull the trigger in a child. And I think that there's a lot of barriers to unpack there that I think is worth discussing. You know, is it the access issues? Is it the receiving hospital? Like, what is it that makes us more afraid to manage pain in pediatrics? For me, the the lack of experience with pediatrics and the frame that I had at the time was thinking that pediatrics were significantly different than adults. And I entered almost every pediatric call with hesitation and feeling less confident because in my kind of education, this was pre this push to, you know, the, treating them the same way we treat adults. It was a little paralyzing. I undertreated probably on all fronts, uh, pr- particularly pain, but kind of all fronts. I was very slow to pull the trigger on medications because I, I've seen meds given to tons of adults and how they responded to those. I just didn't have a lot of patterns for seeing how pediatrics would respond. So I lack of experience and, and thinking that they would were somehow going to respond in such a significantly different way than an adult. And I think our, you know, our education systems contributed that to bit. You know, when we think about the revision of the ed standards, one of the big innovations that happened. I think one of the things that they really benefited from having actually a pediatric EMS physician be one of the two medical directors for that. Pediatrics then got integrated into the other components of the ed standards. It wasn't their their special patients that somehow we have to manage differently, right? Like there isn't pain management and pediatric pain management as the other there's pain management and a spectrum of patients who have special considerations for how we manage pain in that particular population. I think that there's a a frame there that we think of it as different and it makes us more nervous, as well as sort of familiarity with alternative routes of managing pain. I think people are afraid of doing pediatric IVs until you realize you know, you don't need that. Or, you know, in a 12-year-old, it's a lot much less of a bigger deal than necessarily in a a three-year-old or such. But getting over that particular barrier of like sticking a child, doing those kinds of things, because we're not used to being aggressive with pediatric patients, because most of them are luckily okay. You're just treating pain the same way you would treat pain in an adult, right? The effects of pain on a child can have such long-lasting and powerful impacts on them. They're relationship with the healthcare system, 
trauma that they experienced, you know, post-traumatic stress from a traumatic experience in the pre-hospital setting or even in the emergency department or any interaction with healthcare can have real profound effects on them. There's real physiologic damage that can occur. All of those things can have downstream detrimental effects on healing for the patient and their, their potential experiences and the way that we shape their experiences going forward. There's evidence that it's safer to be more aggressive than it is to be more cautious. And that's a change recently. You know, we could start thinking of pediatric pain management the th- same way we think about pediatric seizure management. If you think they're having a seizure, then you should probably intervene. If you think that they're in pain, then you should probably intervene. You brought up the um, short transport time and thinking, well, we'll just get to the hospital. And I'd like to think if I'd been with that patient, maybe I ground transported them to the PD trauma center for a whole hour. I'd like to think within that hour with the crying kid, at some point I would have pulled the trigger on the uh, pain management. But it definitely uh, was an, a, a flaw in my thinking to think because it's a short transport time, I can just wait and watch until we get to the hospital. Across all healthcare settings, I think that there is a reluctancy to treat pediatric patients, particularly if you're, you know, transporting a patient to an emergency department that may not have like a very large pediatric volume, like a non-pediatric ED. The EMSC agrees with you, Jer, and they're doing educational podcasts for ER providers, pediatric ER providers, urgent care, because this is a systemic problem. And I think the reality there, right, that's the sort of the fallacy of the short transport time um, is realizing that things don't happen time zero when you hit the door of the emergency department. And, you know, one of the the big arguments of looking for pre-hospital pain management overall um, is if you actually sort of look a graph at, you know, if a patient doesn't get pain management pre-hospital, their time to pain management in the hospital actually can take quite a while because somebody needs to see them, somebody needs to get access, somebody needs to order uh, the medication, somebody needs to draw it and administer it. And so they're actually, it's not really like, oh, they're going to get it in five minutes. It might actually be an hour or so until they until they get it. The, the risk benefit of different interventions pre-hospital um, are going to be different. But for pain management, I think it's essentially the same throughout the continuum of care is that there's no greater risk of treating pain in the back of a moving ambulance. There is, I don't save like anything by doing it um, in the emergency department, as long as I have resources to help me dose it appropriately, I can do estimated weight. I do things that don't force people to do calculations in the back when they're stressed out because they've got a injured child. It's a little different than, for example, like invasive airway management, <laughs> where I can make an argument about, you know, I can sort of delay my intervention and manage it a different way um, because it's like a higher risk to perform where I am. But pain management, I don't think it is. I think it's the the same. I think it's relatively low risk and that that is consistent throughout the continuum of care. And that's one of the key points, consistent pain management throughout the continuum of care. We who work in the hospital have to be just as timely with our pain management as what we request our clinicians outside the hospital. So how consistent are we with pain management in the hospital? Let's take a quick look at the evidence of how we perform on pediatric pain control in the hospital. Well, let me tell you about a paper 
That's Jeff Jarvis. He's an emergency physician and EMS medical director in Central Texas. I'm the medical director for Williamson County EMS and Marble Falls Area EMS. I practice emergency medicine at Baylor Scott and White Hospital. I'm also the chief medical officer for Flight Bridge Ed and host a podcast called the EMS Lighthouse Project Podcast, where I get to talk about how literature informs our practice in EMS. This is a study they did in their pediatric emergency department looking at how well this pediatric emergency department are both assessing and managing pain. So the title of this paper is Analgesia Use in Children with Acute Long Bone Fractures in the Pediatric Emergency Department, and it was published in 2019. I think that uh, 2019 is probably pretty similar to what we would see in our current practice. And really what they were hoping to do is describe how well we're assessing pain, how well we're managing pain, and how quickly we're doing it. And then they wanted to see, are there any factors that are associated, either patient characteristics or system characteristics that are associated with oligoanalgesia or under treatment of pain? This was a retrospective single center study. And what they did is they went back and looked at all of their records from their EMR and they selected children with the standard definition, 18 or under, who had an emergency department diagnosis of a long bone fracture. What they wanted to know, and again, this was a single center trial, large tertiary care pediatric emergency department. They looked at records from 2005 through 2016. They wanted to see how well we assessed pain, how long it took us to assess pain, how well we treated pain, how long it took us to put in the order, and then how long it took us to actually administer that drug. For a department that sees tens of thousands, just under 100,000 patients a year, only 905 were included. It turns out that long bone fractures are not all that common. So only 905. Most of these kiddos were male, 63%. And that goes along with most kids who hurt themselves managed to be men. Um, so like you would expect from a largely African-American community, 48% of the children in this study were African-American. The median age is a little younger than I would have thought. It's six years old. 72% of the patients with a long bone fracture, the fracture was in the upper arm, and 77% of them were sent home. So roughly, I think, probably representative of what most of us see in the emergency department and what most of our paramedics will see. Now, bottom line, how often did folks actually get pain medicine? Well, 28% of these children had nothing done for pain. No opioid analgesic or no non-opioid analgesic. The median time to get a pain score in the chart, six minutes. So we were reasonably good at documenting a pain score. How long did it take to get even an order for pain medicine put into the chart? The median time was 63 minutes. So over an hour, from the time of arrival, and they put them into the system that they could get any kind of pain medicine. And that's just the order. Now, the median time to the patient actually getting it, 87 minutes. The most common drug they got, ibuprofen. When they looked and tried to describe 
were there any either patient factors or system factors associated with under-treatment of medications, unlike a lot of research out there that shows that there is a clear difference in white children, white patients of any age, and getting analgesia, and non-white children and adults not getting analgesia. They did not see that in this study. So that, I think, is reassuring. They did look at just the group getting opioid analgesia. And unfortunately, much like other studies, African-American children were less likely to get opioid analgesic as compared with white children. Interestingly, those on public insurance, as opposed to private insurance, were also less likely to get opioids. Patients with only one fracture, single fracture, as opposed to multiple fractures, were less likely to get opioids, and that one is sort of self-evident. And if you came in by POV, as opposed to ambulance, you were also less likely to get an opioid. Some of the things that were associated with being treated sooner rather than later, and they were pretty generous in their definition of sooner. If you got treated in under an hour versus over an hour, coming in by ambulance got you treated earlier. Having a lower extremity fracture got you treated earlier. And this part is really interesting. If your department had a NEDOC score, and NEDOC score is this complex calculus to try to give a measure of ED overcrowding. So higher NEDOC scores are associated with more overcrowding, something we're clearly seeing a lot of. Interestingly, high NEDOC scores were associated with getting medicine in earlier. I'm not sure what the implication of that is. Maybe when we feel like we're overwhelmed, we actually get better at doing things. Um, maybe one suggestion here is once the department goes into a crisis mode, they switch to doing something maybe they should do anyway, which is standing orders. So um, nurses at triage, who seem to be really on the ball with doing the pain score, can just automatically use uh, a standing order to get some medication. So that's the study. Basically, 28% got nothing at all. No association between patient factors and getting pain medicine. We're not very good about putting the orders in quickly, and we're not very good at giving them. And I think that's the takeaway. I think that's probably fairly representative of what we would see in most of our departments. I wonder what standing orders, if any, that this hospital had at the time that they did the study. If your children's hospital has protocols and policies that nurses have been put, have put in place and that have been vetted out and being done for years, why not just still in for EMS? Easy protocols and policies for how to assess pain, how to document pain, how to give non-opioid analgesia like immediately on triage and then when to add in opioids. Give it. Go for it. I'm, I'm happy with that. Just organizationally, let's empower our nurses to take care of these patients. They clearly know how to do it. They, they recognize the need for it. Let's just get out of their way. We have the ability to make the ouchie either go away or at least get better. Why on earth would we think that the patient is going to get treated immediately upon arrival, which this paper clearly shows is not going to happen? We have the ability to make them feel better. Let's do that. We have the ability to make them feel better. So let's start with treating pain in the pre-hospital environment. Now, let's dive back into our case with Ginger and see what we can do to make them feel better. 
when you were approaching this case with your medic mindset intact, what options were available to you when you were approaching this patient who was in quite a bit of distress? Uh, so we had the option, as you pointed out earlier, to stabilize the, it was a displaced, angulated tip fib. So we had splinting, we had some cold packs. I had maybe some distracting strategies that I, I could provide. Like we had music in the back of our ambulance. I had pharmacological things. So of those non-pharmacologic, did you use all those? You use your splint, your cool packs, and your distraction? No. And then for pharmacologic, what did you have available? I used the splint. And I think I spent the rest of the time worried I was missing something like a belly bleed. Did you have any any like non-narcotic medications available to you? No. Okay, so no oral anything or... So this was pre-ketamine, so no ketamine, and we had fentanyl, morphine. We had some uh, benzodiazepine protocols if we thought there was muscle spasming to add on. Were you able to assess his pain? How do you evaluate pain in a non-verbal patient? So in a non-verbal patient, I would be looking at vital signs, probably uh, tears, facial grimace, maybe some skin changes, sweating. That would be for a non-verbal patient. And do you remember if you documented a pain score on this patient? I think I did not. No, we have we have several different EMS medical directors. And I'm wondering for you guys, do you teach your medics how to assess pain in a nonverbal or a pediatric patient? And do you emphasize documentation of a pain score? I would say I just realized that I'm completely failing in this arena. Yeah, I was going to say not well to none. And part of it falls also to maybe my own training. In that if I sort of think back in my training, I mean, somebody's shown me a faces scale, but I don't think I ever received that as education in just general emergency medicine. Follow-up question for you guys in your EMS agencies, do you have non-opioid pharmacologic pain control for pediatric patients? So I'm looking at the New York State protocols right now. So our providers carry Tordal but it is only part of the adult pain management protocol. And if I look at the pediatric pain management, if the system carries Tylenol or if they're outfitted for nitrous, um, that can be done at the AEMT level, but our system does not have those, like our local regional system. Other than that, there is morphine or fentanyl. Toradol, ketamine, oral Tylenol, acetaminophen. So we have obviously Tylenol and ibuprofen. We encourage our medics to use those as almost every pediatric patient where there's even a possibility that they're in pain or uncomfortable should get one of those medications. The other most common things we use are morphine, fentanyl. We have ketamine, although that's not really accepted as, in, as indicated for pain management unless it's something severe like a open long bone fracture or something like that. We don't usually... Some medics are comfortable giving it, but most of them will shy away from it and they will just give repeated doses of morphine or fentanyl. I look back at protocols and I can see where Tylenol did exist, but not for pain. So it was for fever. So under the pain management protocol, it existed acetaminophen and ibuprofen for adults only for pain management. We have for two and older IV acetaminophen, for 15 and older snake bites and massive trauma ketamine. Some other systems in, in Cal California have um, Toradol, but that's not systemic. And a lot do not have oral Tylenol or Motrin. 
But I think we've all shown that there is a giant gap in teaching people how do you actually assess pain control in kids, suggesting the documentation of pain that is important. It's like the, the fifth vital sign, making sure that your protocol has a wide variety of pain treatment from non-pharmacologic, non-opioid, non-ketamine pharmacologic to opioid ketamine type pharmacologics and, and giving medics a huge access of tools and how to use them. Now, just to show you guys what we do in our PZR at the tertiary children's hospital, immediately as soon as a kid gets there and they're assessed for pain, if they have, I think it's like a four or higher, you get ibuprofen or Tylenol. And then if you have an obvious deformity, you get 1.5 micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl. If you're listening out there and you're like, wow, how the heck do I do this? Look at your tertiary children's hospital and see if you can steal their protocols and policies. We we build them, we create them. They're well vetted. I just want to mention real quickly, just for our the paramedics who are listening to this so that they kind of get a good understanding of what exactly we're talking about. So we're discussing pharmacologic intervention for pediatric pain versus non-pharmacologic interventions. And I think the easiest way to think about that is non-pharmacologic interventions for pain are things you would do if your child got hurt at home before you would give them medication. So this is, you know, let's take a very simple example. Your child falls down the stairs at home. They're crying. They seem like they're hurt. What's the first thing you do? You pick them up, remove them from the painful situation you provide comfort, whatever that might be. So you as a parent hold them in a position of comfort. So utilizing parents or caregivers on scene or in these situations to provide comfort to the patient is another great example. You may, you know, apply pressure to the area that hurts. So if it's a knee, you could rub that area, you know, press on that area, apply warmth to that area, get a cold pack, those kinds of things. These are all interventions that we do instinctively as parents and as caregivers that I think would be helpful to think about when you're in the field as a medic, what sort of things do I have at my disposal that might not be morphine or fentanyl or whatever it might be. You can do a lot of these things that that don't require a lot of effort and might actually, you know, be beneficial. The other thing is just soothing talking to them. So Ginger, you made a great point putting music on in the back of the ambulance. That's such a fantastic option that you, we do as parents and don't think about, you know, but it's such a good um, a good way to help create less stress in the environment as a whole. We've taken this child who already has some level of stranger anxiety. We have placed them in a huge metal box with all sorts of strange equipment. And then we're bouncing down the road, taking them to a hospital, or they have no idea where. All of that adds to the stress. So those things that you can limit as well are super beneficial. So think about, as paramedics, non-pharmacologic interventions for every patient, even the ones that you're going to give pharmacologic interventions to as well. That includes adults, actually. I've started playing music during sedations in the ED. Um, because people tend to have better dreams on ketamine when they're listening to like, don't worry, be happy <laughs> um, with music. I just like put it on my phone. And so I think it's once again, an example is there's things we do for children that we don't do for adults, which is like a certain sort of compassion and comfort we try and give that we should go the other way. And then there's things that we do for adults that we feel less comfortable doing for children, like pharmacologic intervention and really we should be doing these things for all our patients. And I think another point just to, I wanted to bring up is that, you know, we've talked about all these different non-pharmacologic, pharmacologic agents. Ones, for instance, like ketamine, that doesn't necessarily change hemodynamics and that we should not be using pain 
as a vasopressor in our patients, right? So there are tons of agents that we can use now, and that is not an appropriate response for ignoring somebody's pain. Yeah, pain is a universal, but your experience of that pain is individual, and everyone has a different response to pain based on their prior experience of that. So someone who lives with chronic pain might be able to tolerate a higher level than someone who doesn't. And it's not our job as paramedics and as physicians to dictate what level of stress or pain someone is experiencing, because that is a bias of our own experience. I think the other thing that gets missed is people say like, oh, they were on their phone, therefore they can't be in pain. If you think about ways that you distract yourself or comfort or communicate, right, like saying that you don't get pain management because you're on your phone, I think is just not the right assumption to make. And there's lots of other factors to determine what is going on. I think this is a good place to dive into sort of bias and looking objectively, what are the disparities that we have in management of pain by age for one, um, but also by race. One of the papers that we're going to discuss today is a paper by Hughes et al. entitled Pre-Hospital Pain Management, Disparity by Age and Race. And this was published in PEC in 2017. Before the study, we knew a few things. Metric pain management had already been identified as a care priority by a number of consensus groups, including NSEMSO, NAMSP, and the EMS for Children guidelines. But despite that, analgesia use had been suboptimal, and education and local EMS systems where it had been studied, really none of that had made a difference about whether or not children were treated for their pain. And there was also emergency department-based studies of patients with specific conditions such as blunt trauma or appendicitis, and that found that there was evidence in racial disparities regarding pain management, and those were continued to be replicated elsewhere. There wasn't necessarily a lot of uh, implementation when it came to patient bedside. And we also had emergency department-based studies where they looked at specific conditions such as blunt trauma or appendicitis. And they also found that there, um, there was a lot of racial disparities regarding pain management. Based on this initial body of knowledge suggesting, are we not really treating pediatric pain appropriately? Are there disparities in pain management? The authors of this paper tried to look at the question much more globally using a national data set. Do we have disparities by age and race? The first was that for painful conditions, in this case, fracture, burn, or penetrating injury, which I think we can all agree are pretty painful conditions, what percentage of patients receive any type of pain management, not just opioids? And then when pain management is administered, what types of medications are being used? On top of that, are there disparities that exist in pain management according to race and age? So as I alluded to, um, this used the NEMSIS data set. So this was a retrospective descriptive study that took a three-year period of data from 2012 to 2014. And they pulled calls where there was a 911 activation resulting in a treat and transport. And it included an impression that was fracture, burn, or penetrating injury. And for each of these, they then determined whether pain was documented as a symptom, whether any of the following medications were administered. So morphine, fentanyl, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, hydromorphone, nitrous oxide. And then they also divided the patients into categories by age and race. So what did they find? Out of greater than 69 million EMS activations, 
276,925, that's a lot of calls, were for patients transported with a primary impression of fracture, burn, or penetrating injury. Only 15.6% of EMS activations with these potentially painful medical impressions received any pain meds, and this was lowest amongst infants and toddlers where it was only 6.4%. The most commonly administered medications, morphine and fentanyl, and less than 7% of children aged less than 11 received either medication. What if we only consider situations where pain was documented as a symptom? First, only 29.5% had pain documented as a symptom, and this was significantly lower amongst infants and toddlers, where it was only 14.6%. But even when pain was documented as a symptom, still only 19.9% received pain medication, and only 68.8% of infants and toddlers versus 26.4% of children age 11 to 14. To examine racial disparities, patients were grouped by age less than 15 or greater than equal to 15 years of age, and administration of pain medications varied significantly amongst racial groups. Notably, Black patients were the least likely to be administered pain medication, 8.7%, while white patients were the most likely to, 22.4%. This is almost like a threefold difference by race, and this disparity held for both age groups um, adults and peds. So I think that there is a, a lot to unpack here. There are some limitations of the study. Nemesis is a catalog of events, not individual patients. We don't know whether or not this was BLS or ALS. So even if some of these other forms of pain management were um, available for each one of these responses, However, um, I think that it indicates that we have a, a significant problem. And from sort of an education, a medical direction, a quality improvement perspective, I think we really need to be looking at quality metrics for, you know, do we manage pain and stratifying those by things like age um, and race to say, um, is there bias and disparities in the way that we are um, administering analgesia or pain management? There's a huge gap in the very young kids not getting pain medication. I think a lot of it is fear and trying to differentiate, are they afraid of me and they're crying because they're scared or are they in pain? And how do you differentiate that? Are we giving them education to be able to show the difference? When you look at just the less than 15-year-olds compared to the over 15-year-olds, the differences aren't really impressive. It's 14.8% for the under 15 and 15.6% for the over 15. So you go, okay, so kids are getting treated essentially the same as adults, right? It's not that shocking. But it's when you break them into the age cohorts that you start to go, holy crap, the younger you are, the less likely you are to have pain documented and to actually get pain medication. And I think this is a critical thing that we need to look at for all pediatric research because this is what holds true in all the PED studies is when you do them just as a pediatric group, as an entity, the differences wash out. Those older teens are higher in number and they kind of wash our data out. And when you separate pediatrics into age cohorts, you find huge differences in how we're treating the very youngest to the very oldest pediatric patients. 
The next paper is multi-center evaluation of pre-hospital opioid pain management in injured children. And this is Lauren Brown et al. And there are some pretty big pediatric EMS players in this authorship group. When when they're writing this, there are pre-hospital guidelines on pain management, and they do include pediatrics. NAEMSP has a position statement on pre-hospital pain management, and NHTSA and EMS for Children, EMSC, have evidence-based guidelines for pre-hospital analgesia and trauma, and they both include pediatrics as well as adults. So their objective was to assess the change in frequency of pain documentation and the change in frequency of opioid administration in kids with injuries in three different EMS agencies when they apply these evidence-based guidelines. So looking at like applying PICO to this study, their population, these were less than 18-year-olds with blunt penetration, laceration, and or burn traumas as their primary impression. So these were trauma. And it was they had to be in one of three EMS agencies who were part of the CHAMP research node of PCAR, which includes Charlotte, North Carolina, the City of Houston Fire Department's EMS, and Milwaukee County EMS. Their intervention was they um, updated their pain management protocols, and then they had mandatory CE. The frequency of the CE and whether it was in-person or virtual depended on the EMS agency. And the comparison is they were looking at pre and post. November 2013 to August 2014 was their pre-intervention group. They applied their intervention, gave it a few months to kick in. And then they had a post from November 2014 to August 15th to compare after application of the evidence-based guidelines to their protocols and mandatory medic training. Primary outcomes were as one, frequency of pain documentation. Did they actually write it down on the the sheet. Number two is, did they give opioids? And they're actually looking at the documentation of opioids being given. And then they did a secondary outcome looking at the proportion of intranasal, aka needle-free, versus IM or IV opioid administration. What do you think happened when they applied evidence-based guidelines to their protocols and implemented mandatory training? Their pain control got better? Their pain control got better. Any other guesses? Nothing got better. (laughs) Oh, either you read the paper. I was like, oh, this is going to be awesome. We're going to see improvement. We're going to be documenting pain more. We're going to be giving more pain medications. This is going to be great. Evidence-based guidelines changing clinical care. Woohoo! And their results, uh, they had 3,600 pre, roughly 3,700 post. And you guys were sadly correct. There was no change in documentation of pain scores or in opioids administered or even opioids administered if the pain score was four or higher. They've documented in roughly 18% pre and post. Interestingly enough, they found that of those 18%, roughly three quarters of them were moderate to severe pain. So if you're in higher pain, you're more likely to have a pain score documented pre and post. Their opioid administrations were 5% in pre and post. And um, if you had a moderate to severe pain score, it went up to 15%. When they looked at their secondary outcome of whether it was intranasal or a needle form of opioids, what they found was actually decrease. It went from 22% to 27%. And the interesting thing is almost all of that was from one of the three EMS agencies. So there was a huge discrepancy on who got the intranasal. And all three agencies had the capacity to do intranasal IM and IV opioid administration. So that's that's not actually a limitation. Unfortunately, implementation of protocol changes did not translate into clinical practice change. One thing that they did mention is that 
the only thing they did not include from the evidence-based guidelines was to implement quality improvement projects. And so none of these EMS agencies implemented a QI program along with the change in their protocol. And so they're saying maybe that would have made an improvement, but they're not really sure. The other thing is that uh, you can't tell if it was ALS or BLS. So if you had a BLS provider, you're not going to be able to get an opioid administration. You should be able to have pain documentation, though. And the other thing that they did not include, but especially after Dr. Dorset's paper, I would have loved to have seen, they didn't break it down by age. This was less than 18-year-old as an entity. So we can't tell if it was actually much worse the younger you got, as we're seeing with other papers. The interesting thing is of the three agencies, which are really big agencies, one of the agencies, pre, two patients, two patients got pain medication and post five patients of like several hundred got pain medication. So I'm betting in a multi-year system, like a multi-year time event, a lot of patients had significant injuries, both bone fractures, deformed, for, you know, big significant traumas. And yet there was very little opioid administration given, which I thought was um, very interesting and a huge gap that we can improve. If I look at this paper from a QI lens, I think there's lots of situations where somebody says, all right, I've changed the protocol, I've provided some education, and therefore it's better, but they don't actually measure the quality measure over time and say, did I actually make a difference? And what your intervention is literally the equivalent of like the memo on the back of the toilet stall, thinking that everybody is going to read it. But that doesn't necessarily translate to the patient's bedside. Really, the next step here is the question of why talking to the medics and saying, what are the barriers, identifying cases where there was an opportunity for pain management and trying to get into their mindset of what were the barriers? Is it because they didn't know the patient's weight and they didn't have like, they didn't pull out the thing to estimate it, or they didn't know it was okay still, or they were nervous or et cetera, because you slowly have to develop, dissect those barriers and develop theories of change and continue working on it. Change does not happen with a single step. It happens through a series of small uh, cycles, PDSAs. Um, But the key thing here is if you measure it, it's not necessarily the result that you think it would be, um, even if your intentions are good and your guidelines are evidence-based. I think this paper is a good reminder is, you know, whenever you are implementing any major change to your EMS agency, you really have to own it. So including a quality insurance program is part of that process. So you can't just change the protocol and pat yourself on the back? No, unfortunately you can't. And also too, if you're looking to see, you know, if your change has made a difference, maybe uh, you're measuring the wrong time period. Um, So, you know, when we talk about pre-hospital papers, there's uh, most frequently a washout period as what it's called. So that's, you know, if you're doing a before and after study, Um, you want to make sure that there's some transition time accounted for that change. This raises a great point about training and education and intervention in pre-hospital medicine overall. You know, the American Heart Association puts out guidelines on CPR and bag valve mass ventilation, and those things only matter if people actually do the things that they put out. And I think a lot of the times, although we make recommendations, we provide education and training for our medics, Unless there's some real-time prompt to get them to do something, you know, I'm thinking of CPR tempo as a way to get people to do appropriate CPR. These kind of in-the-moment feedback tools 
are really, really powerful and much more powerful than just let's do a PowerPoint on doing X, Y, and Z, and then you guys go out in the field and do it. I wonder if having access to a pediatric dosing tool or having a prompt on your EMR that says, hey, did you document a pain score? What was the pain score? And did you provide any pain medication? I don't want medics to think that I believe that they should just be people who check boxes and and follow electronic recommendations. But this might be a useful tool and something that, you know, I w- would be interested to see if they had a different outcome if they had those kind of real-time interventions. It's funny, Joe. I was thinking cardiac arrest too is like that's what one of my big QI things that has been it's this EMS systems are a slow ship to change the navigation on. There's a huge culture shift. There's a whole change. And there's a lot of things that happen in the environment that are barriers that you can't see. And so, for example, our pediatric QI project on stay and play for pediatric cardiac arrest, at least until you get your your access and your epi on board, it's taken three years. So this study, like if we had implemented data gathering immediately, we would have seen no no change either. And so I'm wondering, Jared, if you have a point, if we if we looked on these three systems and we actually looked in three to five years time, would you see that they shifted and their documentation and their administration of pain medications is much stronger than if you took three EMS agencies who did not do any of this? All right. Do you want some actual recommendations now? Yes. You want real recommendations now? Real recommendation. Real evidence-based guidelines. All right. So next up is Lindbeck at all. I only want them if they're recent, Chair. Oh, well, you are in luck because these are very recent. So this is Lindbeck at all. So this was published in pre-hospital emergency care in 2021. So this is evidence-based guidelines for pre-hospital pain management, right? So this is pre-hospital pain management covering adults and pediatric patients. So what is this? You know, there was this study. It was a systematic review that was recently published by the University of Connecticut Evidence-Based Practice Center for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. The agency was called AHRQ. They had funding provided by NHTSA. And so they published the systematic review of kind of, you know, what is out there across the board for pre-hospital pain management So the authors assembled a technical expert panel, so a technical expert panel. And if you read the list of the experts in this panel, I mean, there's a lot of friendly faces that we all know and love. Um, So kind of looked at individuals with broad expertise in emergency medicine, pre-hospital care and pharmacology, and they came up with 10 recommendations, which I will summarize. Number one, this involves pediatrics. So intranasal fentanyl is preferred over intramuscular or IV fentanyl in pediatric patients. So we shouldn't be delaying pediatric pre-hospital pain control for IV access. Makes sense. Recommendation number two, IV acetaminophen is preferred over IV opioids for moderate to severe pain if it is available. Recommendation number three, IV NSAIDs or IV opioids for initial pain management pre-hospital is appropriate. Recommendation number four, IV NSAIDs over IV acetaminophen is preferred, okay? So uh, IV NSAIDs probably a little bit better than IV acetaminophen. You can also administer PO acetaminophen or NSAIDs. Make sense? 
Recommendation number five, IV ketamine or IV NSAIDs for initial pain management pre-hospital is appropriate. Recommendation number six, IV ketamine or IV opioids for initial pain management pre-hospital is appropriate. Recommendation number seven, if opioids are selected for pain control pre-hospital, we should preferably be using IV fentanyl or morphine. Recommendation number eight, avoid weight-based IV ketamine and opioids together versus opioids alone, which is preferred. Recommendation number nine, IV ketamine versus IV opioids plus IV ketamine, not enough information to make a recommendation. So if you compare IV ketamine versus an IV opioid plus IV ketamine, can't make a recommendation. Number 10, nitrous oxide versus IV opioids pre-hospital. Not enough information to make a recommendation. So those are the 10 recommendations, two of which are non-recommendations. Okay, it's kind of confusing. Um, But the take-home point, so there is a lot of different options for pharmacologic pain control pre-hospital. You want to be very careful whenever you're mixing IV opioids and IV ketamine. And remember, atomizers are so easy to use. Intranasal pain control is a very, very therapeutic and efficacious modality. Um, Also, let's not forget the oral medication. So oral acetaminophen and NSAIDs whenever they're available. Yeah, I think this makes the life of a medical director a little bit easier to just have this information because I think we put this podcast out and tell people that they need to start treating pediatric pain. And then we sort of, you know, it's like, all right, go do it. But this gives someone a tool, an actual description of how best to go about managing that. So it always makes life easier when you have something quick and a good summary of, of exactly the steps to do. I like it. It's, uh, it's, it's meaty enough and it has the literature that I can bring back the evidence to support any changes I want to make in the pre-hospital pain management with, with good evidence. Like it's, it's easy. Like you can go back to your system and go, Hey, I want to make these changes. And here's the evidence behind it. It's so concise. And there, there's really good reasonings on why they make suggestions as well. Okay. Let's do a quick recap. One is, and I, I think, you know, this is kind of the, the main point, identify a protocol that's evidence-based for the treatment of pediatric patients with pain. Jeremiah Escajeda gave a great example of 10 things you can do to make a more aggressive, robust pre-hospital pain treatment protocol. That's number one for the medical directors. Number two is train your medics. This is what I expect of you. This is the new expectation for the management of pain. Here are the protocols that I expect you to follow. Provide them with some guidance on what are the signs and symptoms of pain in a pediatric patient. Okay, now you've given them the tools in order to treat pain, and you've given them the knowledge to identify the pain. So I think those are very important. And then also be sure to discuss, make it clear that we all have our own biases when we encounter a patient, whether it's a child, and we don't think that the child is in as much pain as the parent is telling us they're in, or as the injury might lead us to believe, and make sure that you're aware of that bias so that it doesn't misguide you in your treatment. And then you got to have quality improvement and quality assurance. I mean, as a medical director, this is just like this should be the oil uh, on the machine of your EMS agency. Thank you for listening to the Pediatric EMS Podcast. Again, I'm Dr. Joseph Finney. And I'm Dr. Joelle D'Onofrio-Odman. Special thanks to our guests and content experts. 
We look forward to bringing you more expert commentary and evidence-based guidance for medics and EMS physicians to elevate the care of children in your community. We'll see you next time. And remember, educate yourself because caring for children may be scary, but lack of knowledge, training, and understanding is terrifying. Let's go save some kids. This podcast episode is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, whose mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. To learn more about the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, visit https colon slash slash emscimprovement.center. That's https colon slash slash emsc. I-M-P-R-O-V-E-M-E-N-T dot C-E-N-T-E-R. And if you enjoy this episode, please be sure to like us on iTunes or whatever streaming service you use to listen to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter with our Twitter handle at Podcast. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments. You can reach us at pediatricemspodcast at gmail.com. That's pediatricemspodcast at gmail.com. For years, I've encouraged paramedics to get degrees. But when I carefully listened to the stories of paramedics, I realized there are challenges that have to be addressed. Things like 2448s, childcare, mortgages. I'm pleased to share that I have an answer that matches what I know about the working paramedic who tells me they are ready to pursue a degree. Eastern Kentucky University offers a bachelor's in emergency medical care that is 100% online and allows college credit for existing state or national registry certifications. EKU is a nationally known program, and I trust them to take good care of Medic Mindset listeners who want to start their journey toward a degree. You can go to the show notes for this episode for a link or simply use go.eku.edu medic to get started.